welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast which takes you through some of the most important yet controversial events in the life of the Communion of Rome. My name is Derek Taylor. I am the proprietor of this podcast. Welcome uh, to the podcast. This uh, episode is the first in a new series on liberation theology. And so this uh, is going to introduce uh, the topic and then we'll get to uh, deep into the history in the next few episodes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Everyone who subscribes on Anchor uh, or uh, to the YouTube channel where you find this, um, please um, humbled by your uh, by your uh, uh, interest in the podcast. Please um, continue and please help spread the word for us, uh, if you would. Uh, it's very important for me. Just to introduce myself again, this is the first podcast of the new year, 2022, 2022, a new year. Damn, I'm old. And boy, this this venture I've been doing is going on for several years now. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Derek Taylor. I'm a uh, adjunct professor of history at Johnson County Community College in Overland Park, Kansas. And I've been doing this for a few years now. Started out as a sort of local series of talks I did for my local parish has morphed into a podcast. And so I hope it's helpful for some of you out there, give you some basic background on uh, important topics, uh, historically speaking, in the life of the church. Uh, more about myself. You don't need to know this, but this is where I'm coming from. I'm a convert of the Catholic Church. I was baptized back in 2003 and uh, have been Catholic ever since. And um, these days, I guess if you want to get my position uh, on this whatever theological spectrum these days in the church, I guess I would accept the the label traditionalists. I'm pretty heavy in tra tradition. Uh, obviously, I love history. The history of the church means a lot to me. And so that's where I'm coming from, generally speaking. However, if this is your first time listening, don't be scared away by that. I don't care who listens to this. <laughs> uh, even if you were opposed to the death, everything that that word traditionalist means. The way I do my podcast, I have a definite point of view. I'll let you know what it is. But I do this in a fairly academic sounding manner. That's my training as a historian, as a secular historian. I'm a historian of early modern Britain. I do politics in, in the 16, uh, 1600s, late 1600s in England. So we're going to do this in a fairly even-handed way. Um, so again, that offends you. I'm sorry for it, but you won't have to worry about me. I don't think I don't take pot shots. I don't do things that way. Um, and yet I am, I am coming from a definite point of view, and I do think uh, in those terms. So anyway, um, that's um, um, podcast little intro there. Let me start out by defining our topic: liberation theology. If you don't know what this is. One, uh, this is a, a school of theology which arose in the 1960s in Latin America within the Catholic Church, spread outside of it. And, well, I'll give you one definition that an actual, someone sympathetic to the movement uh, has given to it as a, as a definition of, 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 uh, of liberation theology. And, and uh, here it goes. Liberation theology is, quote, I'm quoting here, a critical reflection on the historical praxis of liberation in a concrete situation of oppression and discrimination. It is not a reflection on the theme of liberation, but a, quote, a new manner, unquote, of doing theology. 
the perspective of the poor and the commitment of Christians to the transformation of the world are the privileged places of a theological task, unquote. And that is, in its essence, what liberation theology is. Um, liberation theologian, theologians, as they define themselves, and again, I'm generalizing, as you're going to see, there are some distinctions we made here. Generally speaking, what all that stuff about praxis means is that in countries where the poor, the underclass is oppressed, liberation theologians take undertake what they call critical analysis of the oppression. In particular, in terms of um, theology and the church, they uh, and they this is using I'm using their terms. They interrogate the traditions of the church to see if they've been, you know, in cahoots with the oppression, oppressive forces in society. And then uh, the ideas you said about transforming through the tradition in order to empower uh, the poor who are the privileged, as that definition gave you there, part of society in this theology. And from there, to reconstruct society uh, based on the experience of, of the poor and their liberators or whatever, uh, in the, on the basis of that. And that's essentially what liberation theology in, in its outlines aims at. It aims at, at, as you hear there, a reconstruction of society along what it takes to be lines of Christian liberation from oppression, from economic, social oppression. And you're probably familiar with terms. You've heard them if you don't know what liberation theology is. And some of this stuff has gotten into church documents, others not. Uh, but terms like structures of sin, structures of sin refers to social structures that oppress the poor the people, whatever. Um, terms like preferential option for the poor, the idea that the poor have a moral claim on the church to a greater degree than other people because of their oppression. That's part of this. And then that term I've already used in that definition, praxis, this is a, this is a Marxist term. Uh, comes originally from Marx, if I'm not mistaken, in which Praxis means the historical practice, the actual concrete. That's another term they like to use, concrete, as opposed to abstractions, which is kind of funny because a lot of this stuff is abstract. But nonetheless, that's what the focus on this is. Now, the importance of this movement, which flourished basically from the 1960s up until the end of the 1980s, uh, was still around more or less, but it is important for several reasons. It comes out of that 1960s background with the Second Vatican Council in terms of the church itself, the Catholic Church, and its, you know, attempts to sort of uh, come to terms with the modern world, but also the social upheavals in Latin America in the 1960s are crucial for understanding it. Um, and then finally, uh, then, uh, it had, of course had for several decades a major influence on the church, uh, Catholic Church in Latin America, and its influence has spread beyond the boundaries of the Catholic Church. Other liberation types of liberation theology have emerged since then outside the communion of Rome. And so we're going to cover, well, I'm going to outline the series here as it goes forward, the episodes. This episode is going to talk about, I'm going to give you background. I think you need to have some historical background to understand where this comes from. Uh, from so the first episode, this episode's Latin America to the 1960s. 
background. The next episode, we'll talk about the first wave of liberation theologians who emerged in Latin America in the 19, late 50s and early 60s, uh, up to 1968. Um, that'll be the second episode. The third one will, will be about the sort of consolidation and the, the high point, really, the success in the 1970s of these theologians um, till the election of John Paul II. And then uh, the fourth episode will be the decline and fall of liberation theology as it encounters opposition. If you don't know, it did uh, from the Vatican, from John Paul II, and uh, and uh, his his uh, head of the uh, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, Joseph Ratzinger, and kind of basically petered out by the 1990s, early 1990s, definitely by the late 1990s, it lost a lot of influence. And then I'll have uh, a Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I'll, that last episode will be a little longer, but also talk about the legacies of liberation theology, what's happened since then. Maybe there'll be a, maybe there'll be a fifth, fifth episode, I haven't decided yet, uh, but about uh, its lingering influence, because as you'll see, uh, in the reign of Pope Francis, uh, some of the theologians who had been under suspicion in the earlier pontificates have come in for praise uh, from Pope Francis. So that's all part of this, uh, this, um, historical influence here so that's the outline that's the series well a couple of things i want to say before i get started i want to thank some people uh first i want to thank a person i hope she's listening uh vanessa michael who is someone who contacted me back in june of last year asking me to do a series on liberation theology i apologize for taking it so long to get back um my regular job gets in the way, but uh, thank you for this for getting me onto this. It's an interesting and important topic. And by the way, I mentioned that because if you would like to like me to do a topic, even a standalone episode or a series, I'm more than willing to do that. It may take me some time to get to it, obviously, but by all means, contact me through uh, the Facebook page, website, uh, Controversies in Church History. You can contact me there, and uh, if it's doable, I will do it. Um, I have no problem with it. Thank you, Vanessa. Uh, for suggesting the topic. And then I'd like to thank, I actually have two donors for this podcast. Um, I don't ask for donors normally. I don't really need them for the most part, but uh, I've been asking for it basically to cover for, and I wanted, this is why I want to do this, is cover for, I'm trying to advertise the podcast more, get the word out. And um, if, if I'm thanking, by the way, the two that I have through Anchor, and you can donate through Anchor if you want. Um, Anchor is where the host of my podcast. I want to thank Christian Bontz, and um, Michael Donacaro, who I've actually met Michael, of course. He's wonderful. Thank you, guys. I have not actually spent the money you have donated to me yet. I haven't had time. Uh, but it's going to go toward advertising, uh, probably on Facebook to start with. So just to get, buy a few ads, get it out there. That's I, I'm not, just to make clear here, this is not a money-making podcast. Uh, I mean, I guess if I get enough listeners, I can, I can whatever, do ads or something. But... Uh, this is not the goal of the podcast. The goal of the podcast is to spread historical knowledge um, in the service of the church and in the service of, you know, for me, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I, 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 I believe in orthodoxy. I believe in the truth that the church teaches, and it's important to me. And so that's why I want to do this. And so uh, that's why I'll, that's why I want to make clear, yeah, I, again, feel free to donate if you'd like be a bigger help if you just spread the word let people know email one person about it message them on send them a dm on twitter or whatever whatever social media platform you are we much more helpful than doing any money which i do not actually in, in dire need of but i'm thankful for it and i definitely will use that to help spread the word about it and that's about it so all that all those preliminaries out of the way let me get to the actual history and so to understand where 
liberation theology comes from. You have to know something about the church in Latin America. I'll say this about the colonial period. The church uh, is sometimes portrayed as being, you know, part of the oppressive nature of the colonizing, you know, uh, structures or whatever of the Spanish empire and things like this. It's a little more complicated than that. The church at times can actually be uh, at odds with the Spanish state for a variety of reasons, could at times in the colonial period be protective of the native, native peoples under its care. It's also true, of course, the church and the powers that be, bishops, a lot of times did ally themselves with landowners and mer merchants. And so, again, it's implicated in some ways with the oppression of native peoples to a degree. But the church was not a monolith uh, whatsoever. And I think that narrative is, is way overdone and just not, not accurate in my, um, in my estimation, even though it's beloved of certain types of historians. Uh, so it's more complicated than this uh, oppressive, oppressor-oppressed narrative you kind of get sometimes. And in fact, this is where I want to start, is um, after the, uh, after the um, independence movements have already succeeded in the 19th century in Latin America, if you don't know, most of Latin America was under either Spanish or Portuguese rule. And in fact, to give you an idea of why this is a little bit too, too simplistic to say the church was on the side of the oppressors, many of the leaders of the various revolutions in Latin America during the period of about 1810 to 1825 were actually um, priests. And in fact, divisions had opened up in the church during the colonial period between bishops, high-ranking prelates who supported the Spanish state, and the lower clergy. And these continued into the uh, into post-independence era, with, in fact, uh, the lower clergy, you know, parish priests, generally supporting more, quote-unquote, liberal policies. I need to define those terms for you. I'm going to use those terms because they're handy, but I need to be precise here because it's going to mean a lot of things. Initially, after those revolutions of the early 19th century, elites in Latin America divided between what I'll call conservatives, quote unquote, who favored close ties with the church. They favored giving it privileges like it had during the colonial period or continuing this. And uh, liberals, quote unquote, who favored uh, some sort of, you know, either an American style of separation of church and state or perhaps certain places and more radically something like uh, French laicism, if you know what that is. Important point here is that by the latter half of the 19th century, uh, most uh, nations in Latin America had liberal governments. They had elections, most of them, but um, they were dominated by what I'm calling liberals. In many countries, the governments would confiscate church property, nationalize it in the name of the state, name of the nation, uh, close religious orders as being useless. Uh, there are some exceptions to this. I should mention Colombia, where a concordat was signed with the papacy very quickly after it became independent. And the church for up until the you know, second or third decade of the 20th century maintained its autonomy. Also unique was Brazil. Um, Brazil was unique because in 1823, it became independent from Portugal, but also became a monarchy, retained a monarchy, I should say. The, the monarchy got, was gotten rid of in Portugal, and the monarch came from Portugal and became a monarch in Brazil. And so the better part of the 19th century, they had a monarchy. And, um, and so you have some differences uh, among these types of governments. But, however, one big thing to note here is that most of the latter part of the 19th century was a bad time for, you know, poor people, lower orders of peasantry in rural areas, and native peoples. Um, the reason why is these new nation states, uh, especially these liberal nation states, 
uh, wanted to curb the church's power. This meant that fewer priests were ordained because uh, the, the state in some places had a say in this. It also meant many parishes now had to do without priests for the first time in Latin America since the 17th century. They had an abundance of priests before this. And so you're having places without the sacraments. You're having a problem, by the way, which in many places in Latin America still persists. Uh, moreover, um, these governments made changes in the legal status of bodies called confraternities and sodalities. If you don't know what these are, these are religious organizations for laymen, which were the primary vehicle for which a lot of laymen in the colonial period actually participated in the church's life and to which native peoples often belonged. And they often got their wealth confiscated by the new states. And so this, again, this, this hurt native people on the uh, lower end of the social scale. As a result, in some places in Latin America, you had popular religious movements uh, coming to the fore, sometimes in opposition to church, more often in opposition to these new states, which mixed religion and politics. Several times ending, by the way, with government troops destroying these sort of utopian communities that get uh, created by these popular movements. I won't go into these through detail. They're actually fascinating stories in them themselves. As one called Canudos in Brazil, the latter part of the 19th century was this quasi, I don't know how to describe it, commune set up by this uh, charismatic leader who was Catholic, but kind of sort of mixed with a little bit of like popular religion. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but the Brazilian government sent in troops and, and wiped out the, the, the little commune, basically. Another one of these uh, happened in Mexico, although it wasn't as, as violent an end. So you have uh, people reacting against these liberal governments, not always in favor of the church. You also had several Central American republics at the end of the 19th century under liberal governments in this era actually invite Protestant missionaries into their countries. The reason being they were hoping to modernize their country, particularly their native peoples, Indians, in other words. Uh, the government of Guatemala, for example, the liberal governments of that era, apparently believed that the Protestant work ethic, so-called, was what made the United States successful. However, neither Protestant missionaries nor the church really had much luck in converting the natives from their more local brand of Catholicism, which still emphasized those older institutions like confraternities and sodalities. So uh, again, there was still a lot of pushback uh, by, these, by these peoples. When you get to the 20th century, you begin to have uh, another dynamic happening, which is revolution. Liberal governments in the 19th century, as I mentioned before, often seize church property only to sell it to wealthy buyers instead of distributing it to the poor or to peasants. And thus, in places like Mexico, wealth became even more concentrated among the upper classes. And the church actually supported regimes like this, the regime of Bernal Diaz in Mexico. Uh, and this regime was overthrown in 1910. <clears throat> Excuse me. And eventually an anti-clerical government came to power in 1917 that passed a constitution severely restricting uh, the church, legally speaking. Persecution of priests, you know, probably know the story, a lot of you. This is what led to the famous Cristeros War in 1926, as guerrilla armies fought against uh, the government in the name of the church. Uh, it ended in 1929, the mediation of the uh, United States. But still, you have this, again, this... Um, revolutionary mindset of overthrowing some of these corrupt regimes, these corrupt uh, regimes in Latin America. Um, such fervor also reaches uh, Colombia in the 1930s. Uh, Colombia, as I mentioned before, had been a fairly conservative in the terms I've already defined it as country uh, for the better part of its existence. But in 1930, the liberal government came to power for the first time. 
which led to uh, violence against, again, in the terms I've defined it, conservatives, as liberal governments, you know, payback for having to suffer, I guess, under earlier governments, passed the usual elements of their uh, platform, separation of church and state, freedom of religion, those sorts of things. In subsequent time, these, these more extreme laws were curtailed, but when the conservatives came back to power again in 1946, they, there were reprisals against the liberals for the, uh, earlier liberal, the excesses of the early liberal regime, and this spawned a decade of violence, which is called La, la Violencia uh, in Colombia, Colombia uh, which only ended in 1956 with a power-sharing agreement uh, between conservative and liberal factions after four years of military rule. And so and this is something that happens a lot, and this will be in the background of um, where liberation theology comes from. In Colombia, the church became identified with those conservative factions. And by the way, there were literally churchmen involved in violence during the La Violencia. So we're not talking about something, I'm um, scooping over it for the sake of time. Eeh, some of this stuff got ugly, and the church would be identified with this. And so again, this is going to be, uh, again, being too cozy with the powers that be was a real problem. Uh, in uh, Latin America, not all the time, but sometimes, not among everyone in the church, but among some, to be sure. And so it took many forms, but by the middle of the 20th century, by 1960, uh, definitely, and definitely into the 60s and 70s, as you'll see, much of Latin America began to experience, or not even experienced, some form of military government. Uh, in the interwar period, in the 1920s and 30s, there had been a flirtation with fascism on the part of some conservative types in Latin America, though this faded pretty quickly with the defeat of the Axis powers in World War II. But at the same time, by the time you get to the 1930s, definitely, there are already elements on the left who have become radicalized, who have begun to embrace Marxism and other revolutionary creeds. So you have those ideas, and I'll talk more about the ideas behind liberation theology in the next episode, but by by the second and third decades of the, of the 20th century, it's already there, some of the inspiration for it. You also have another element that you have to understand about Latin America is the rise of populist movements, uh, Caudillo government in the 1930s, where you have opposition to these sort of, you know, oligarchies that run the government in many places. And with the advent of industrialization of these, of these countries, workers' movements, you know, spring up as well. And so conflicts between labor and, you know, capital um, help create conditions for populist leaders who advocate nationalism, nationalist policies in order to co-opt workers and create national coalitions based on their own cultural personality. The first of these came to the fore in the 1930s uh, in Brazil. A man named Getulio Vargas came to power in a military coup in 1930 and ruled Brazil for most the better part of the next 24 years. He strengthened the federal government in Brazil and co-opted workers by making genuine reforms but also by crushing any political parties not loyal to them. This is kind of the, the tact these people take. They do an act genuine reforms to help workers, but they basically crush anyone who's not loyal to them, politically speaking. Uh, Vargas was pushed out by the military in 1945, but then re-elected again in 1950, only to be sort of stymied uh, in uh, his attempts to rule by a number of different interests. In particular, U.S. business interests, which now played a major role in the post-World War II era. We'll get to this next time, especially we're talking about the Cold War, uh, both U.S. business interests, but also the uh, United States government was very active in Latin America. 
And of course, you've heard the term banana republic. That refers to U.S., again, fruit companies causing revolutions in Latin America. This is that time period. And so Vargas actually uh, actually uh, was so, I guess, frustrated in 1954, he actually committed suicide over this. He blaming these outside forces for his demise. But the most important of these caudillos was, of course, Juan Perón of Argentina, who rose from the military to become president of Argentina in the 1940s. Similar to Vargas, he won his uh, he established a base among workers until becoming president between 1946 and 1945. Like him, he also created his own political parties, appealing to every virtually every constituency you could think of. He even colluded, he even created a both a feminist party and a men's party in Argentina. Can you imagine? Um, the, the men's rights movement had a champion, Juan Perón. We didn't even know it. Uh, but really, and same similar to Vargas, he enacted real reforms for workers, at the same time creating a, a cult of personality around himself. Again, the idea of this Caudillo government is to overcome conflicts by focusing on the personality of the leader. And this is uh, one of his uh, achievements, I guess you can put that way, as president of Argentina. Most of his other achievements were fairly short-lived. He was eventually forced uh, into exile in 1955, but he cast a shadow over Argentine, uh, Argentine life long after he was forced from exile. He came back briefly in the 70s, died very quickly thereafter. But And populist leaders would emerge in other countries, such as Peru, Colombia, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, though none as important as the two I just mentioned. And just, to, just as an aside, just to make clear about this, um, initially the church was very supportive of Perón, and yet Perón uh, turned on the church in the early 1950s, so much so that the church came to actively oppose him before his downfall. However, it's, uh, his early support for his role damaged his reputation in Argentina. Argentina. Uh, and by the 1950s, the church's influence on public life was fading both there and, and elsewhere in Latin America, not only because of outside influences, but also because of growing internal divisions. And in fact, uh, in response to the social turmoil of the first decades of the 20th century, the church, um, lay Catholics in Latin America, formed uh, associations meant to combat some of the evils that were present in uh, uh, Latin American society. In Peru, for example, they formed Catholic unions to combat Marxism and socialism. The, uh, uh, the core of these lay associations were mostly among the middle and lower classes, and they sprang from those older institutions like confraternities and sodalities, but were open to native and lower class people. After 1930s, a series of youth movements coalesced and come to be called Catholic Action, a movement which had its origins in Europe, and a lot of the things I've mentioned here so far have their parallels in Europe, uh, to energize lay Catholics in political life. This is actually an initiative of Pius XI in the 1920s, uh, which accepted the church's exclusion from public life, but energized lay Catholics to put Catholic social teaching into action into society. These uh, Catholic action movements usually had a bishop as an advisor, uh, were segregated by age and sex. A lot of them specialized in specific activities, such as uh, sports or student groups. And the important thing to note about these Catholic action groups is they actually fed into a lot of different movements in uh, Latin American life, Catholic movements. And they had both, as I've used the terms for this purpose of this, of this podcast, conservative and liberal supporters. And so uh, you had, you know, this could go either way. Catholic action was not necessarily a leftist or a right-wing sort of movement. 
And in fact, though, uh, older members tended to be more conservative and liberal supporters tended to come increasingly attracted to the social teaching of the church as time went on. And they would come to predominate Catholic action as you approach the middle of the century. Another thing that's happening on the eve of the Second Vatican Council, especially, is after 1930, for a decade or so, the number of priests in Latin America begins to grow again for a couple of reasons. One is that restrictions in many places in Latin America on the church are being lessened. In particular, those uh, left-wing groups who are being influenced by Marxism at that point are directing most of their, their fire at economic elites at that point, not the church as yet. And in fact, in this period, middle and lower class men begin to find it in the priesthood an attractive venue for social mobility, and they will begin to you know, um, enter the priesthood in greater numbers. You will also have numbers being increased by missionaries from the United States, and but also from Italy and France. And these will be fairly important, as we'll see next time. But you also have from 1939 onward, with the victory of Francisco Franco in Spain over, over uh, Republican forces there, left-wing forces, uh, a number of priests coming from Spain, because there's a, Franco is a patron of the church, and so you have lots of vocations. They come as well to, to Latin America. And both of these groups, by the way, the missionary priests and Franco and the Spanish ones, have very different ideas about what the church is like. Most of the ones from Spain come are very, very traditional. They come to see, they see the church primarily as a hierarchy and a bastion of social stability. But those from places like the United States and France, especially France, as we'll see next time in Italy, tend to see the church in more, uh, more, let's uh, say, egalitarian terms. They tend to view the church as a, the body of all the faithful and put less emphasis on hierarchy. And their ideas would influence the theology of the Latin American church in the coming decades. And especially, the, um, they'll be influential, some of these missionary priests, as we'll see next time, on the early exponents of, La of liberation theology in Latin America. At the same time, in the post-war period, um, you have Protestant missionaries um, beginning to make uh, serious progress in certain parts of Latin America for the first time. Uh, and so this is a, a shift. And again, this, this is going along partly with American influence. Um, missionaries from the United States kind of come along with, you know, federal government, the CIA, get the military down there, uh, business interest as well. It's all kind of a piece in many respects. And of course, and this is something that's a big part of all this, is that the Latin America is going to become, and I'll, I'll go into this more detail next time, a, a battleground in the Cold War between the United States course and the USSR both major things to understand the background for this as well but also by the late 1940s uh, the number of priests began to decline again uh, in Latin America as again middle and lower class men began to look for social mobility elsewhere um, even as some regimes again closed seminaries and hindered clerical training again one of the things that's happening here is you're having governments being antagonistic to the church Again, feeding into that problem that emerged after independence in many of these places, which is a lack of priests. And one of the things you have to remember about uh, the priesthood and the church, you know, modern seminary formation, modern priestly formation is not cheap. And again, some of these countries, they're, they're, they're kind of impoverished vis-a-vis -vis the other countries. So when you have you know, priests coming, well, not just priests, but other countries in whatever guise, the United States with its NGOs and its military advisors and 
uh, and uh, and whatnot, U.S. business interests, but also missionaries in the church from places like France and Italy and the United States. They have more money. They have more wealth. They have a lot of influence of necessity just because they have the money to fund a lot of this stuff. And in fact, though, even as um, vocations decline, there are still many men from poorer families who seek out the priesthood for social reasons in Latin America, as do some men from wealthier families as part of social attitudes about, you know, being a part of the upper class. But in many places, especially the rural areas, uh, the shortage of priests would become very, very acute for the late 1950s. And so you have, on the eve of the Second Vatican Council uh, in Latin America, a situation in which you have sometimes unstable governments, which can be overthrown by the military. You can have, you know, fights between left and right, uh, both economically sp economically speaking. Uh, but you also have the church involved in all this, caught up in this, even as you have a divide within with the church itself, or people with newer ideas about what the church should be. Um, again, the idea the church shouldn't be on the side of more, you know, regressive social forces. And again, this is one of the problems here is that Socially, you know, being socially conservative sometimes lines up with being um, orthodox in belief. And the fact of the matter is that those things don't necessarily always go together, but they probably did in Latin America. And more particularly, of course, the church was, quite frankly, in bed with some bad characters in uh, Latin America. Not everywhere. Again, it's not uniform. It is a mixed picture. But... Enough so that you have members of the church itself, the lower clergy, missionary priests as well, uh, academic theologians, because this is where liberation theology is going to come from ultimately. It is ultimately, a, uh, as you're going to see, a, a work of theologians. Um, this idea that the main purpose of the church should not be to uphold the social order. You know, in the past, and in generally speaking, most of Catholic history, the church protests injustice because they believe in what amounts to a sacred uh, sacred social order. In other words, they're attacking an institution for its corruption. They're not doing this in the name of like, hey, let's go overturn, let's go fight the power, let's go. And that's not what they're about. They're about restoring the sort of, you know, ideal sacred social order. And... There are no precedents for this, but what's going to change in the 1950s and 60s of the liberation theologians is they're going to, of course, turn that to a different, what we already talked about earlier in the early part of this this uh, this episode of, no, we're going to actually turn it toward trying to transform society. We're not attacking corruption in the name of, of uh, a sacred social order because that didn't work. We want to transform society. We want to get people out of poverty by by um, aiming at the transformation of society itself. And so you have the situation in which newer ideas are coming to play in you know transitional times. You know things like industrialization are happening as well. You know tensions between classes, rich and poor, uh, middle classes who are looking for for social mobility elsewhere outside the church, and particularly where you don't have priests anymore and where it's hard to find them. This is where, and we'll get to this in more detail next time, in the late 50s, you're going to have the creation of what are called base communities, uh, Comunidades de Bas, in, I think that's how you pronounce it, in, uh, in parts of Latin America, where you're going to have in rural areas, basically the laymen create communities where they will study the Bible together, they will um, you know, discuss 
you know, spiritual things together, they also begin to organize themselves. Again, this comes out of that experience of lay Catholics in an earlier part of the um, of the 20th century in Latin America, trying to, again, take greater ownership of their faith. What's going to happen, as a preview of the next episode, is you're going to have, um, this is where liberation theology is going to start. It's going to find its way into these base communities. And it's going to um, uh, lead to a pretty quick, I don't know what you'd call it, takeover or um, embrace uh, of liberation theology first among these base communities. Very quickly, it'll be embraced, as you'll see in the 1960s, by the hierarchy, many of whom by then recognize they need to do something different in terms of you know helping the people in Latin America and not being so on the side of, of, of types of government, which again, if you're where I'm honest about where I'm coming from, I'm, a, I'm an American, I'm a fairly, I'm a very socially, culturally conservative person, not really big into left-wing movements or causes. I generally tend to favor, uh, yeah, I'm right-wing, sure, yeah, I'd go for that. Um, again, some of these right-wing governments in Latin America were, of course, horrible. Uh, I'd like to think that I had enough integrity that I'd be opposed to them. I don't know if I were in that situation, but you're getting into really, in some ways, dicey situations, as you'll see in the 1960s and 70s, definitely, with, you know, coup d'etats and military governments and stuff like this. And so that's all should be in the background of liberation theology um, and where it's going. And uh, when it'll be part of the explanation for, and again, I'll repeat this, I'm generally opposed to liberation theology. I think it's a bad idea for a variety of reasons that I'll explain going forward, but it comes out of a situation in which there were really serious problems in the church, but also in the surrounding society in which it was ensconced in Latin America in the middle of the 20th century. And problems which are still there in some regards. So that is the introduction to liberation theology. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, please look out next time, next week or so, you'll have the next episode coming up shortly. Uh, next time, we'll deal with the first wave of liberation theologians, late 1950s, 1950s up to 1968, and uh, talk about the, or the intellectual origins of uh, more detail and intellectual origins of liberation theology and where that comes from. Again, if you like the what you've heard, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, go to my Facebook page and like the page. Uh, go to my website. Check some stuff out there. My website, uh, it's churchcontroversies.com. I actually post articles there. I've been writing articles lately, by the way, uh, for Crisis Magazine. I have another one coming out here in the next few weeks. I also wrote a review uh, of a book um, called The St. Gallon Mafia for Inside the Vatican Magazine. So I do stuff there. I post there occasionally other stuff. So please go to the website. Check it out. Um, and you can go to Anchor to subscribe to the podcast. Again, if you want to donate, that's cool. But let people know. Let the people know if you like this and enjoy it. Um, where they can find me, where they can find uh, all my past episodes. So thank you, everyone. Have a blessed and safe, uh, ha happy new year to everybody. Um, God bless you all. And we'll hear, uh, hear from me next time.